Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. A very pleasant welcome to another edition of After Hours with Defoe and Luby. Jeff DeForest, Mike Luby Lubitz with you on the Believe Podcast Network. And a very special guest uh, joins us right here at the top of the program today. This is always great. Uh, We've had tremendous relationships and connections with uh, what was uh, maybe the most iconic group of sports writers ever assembled at one newspaper at one time. And that's saying a lot because newspapers, you might recall, uh, happened to be big back in the day. I still get one delivered to my house uh, every day, and I I love opening up. I I can't read the thing online or on my cell phone. There's just something about uh, holding in your hand an actual uh, newspaper, a tabloid newspaper, in this case, the New York Post. But Boston Globe, always great. And uh, we had Gordon Eads down here writing baseball. Uh, We borrowed him from the Boston Globe for a period of time. He was brilliant. My friend Ron Borges, tremendous boxing writer. Used to see him out there on a circuit. Loved uh, talking to him. He he was on a scene when Bob Arum uh, was fighting Mike Katz from the New York Times. And we finally discovered that uh, Katz was a phony for 25 years wearing that neck brace. But uh, a lot of classic guys, Will McDonough, Bud Collins, of course, uh, our dear friend Leslie Visser. But we welcome to the show well, one of the greats, iconic writers for the Boston Globe. Been there since 1981, started on the Celtic speed. The great Dan Shaughnessy joins us here on the program. Dan, how are you? Good to have you on the show. I'm doing, I'm doing good. Nice to talk to you again, Jeff. Ah, it's a pleasure. I mean, uh, you're, you're the kind of guy, too, and it sounds like uh, this is sort of the feel you would get from uh, your latest offering, uh, Wish It Lasted Forever, your NBA memoir, but uh, the kind of thing you'd like to discuss maybe at the Corner Pub or uh, the Pudding Stone Tavern, have a couple of drinks with Dan Shaughnessy and, and have you uh, reminisce about all the things you've seen uh, in your career covering the NBA. Uh, tell us about uh, this undertaking and, and uh, where, where people are uh, going to be taken on this journey that you had through Yeah, that. you hit you hit on it right there, pretty much. I mean, I was telling these stories in bars and, you know, late nights with a bunch of writers over the years because I was privileged to to be the beat guy covering the, the Larry Bird Celtics in the mid-'80s. And of course, you know, they made the finals eight, you know, five times and won three finals in four years in a row. Bird was MVP three straight years. And a lot of us, you know, you look back and think of those as kind of the golden days of the NBA. You know, Magic and Larry came in in 79, and Jordan came in in 84, and thing really took off. And, uh, you know, the pandemic kind of sparked a lot of a lot of this. I think that you know, people think there's going to be you know babies born after the pandemic, but actually, it's <laughs> books are being born during the pandemic because folks are home with a lot of time in their hands, and yeah. and they're um you know you could you could find people. I could call up Kevin McHale, Bill Walton, Cedric Maxwell, and they're home. People are home, and so I just said, you know, let's just put these into into a form. Because watching the Last Dance was uh, inspiring for a lot of us, and then. When there was no sports at the very beginning of this pandemic, I mean, they would run classics from the 80s, like show these old games. And I'd keep seeing my, my young self sitting right at courtside. Because in those days, they didn't sell those seats. They were too, they hadn't figured out yet how many thousands they could get for those seats. So we'd be sitting right there along the bench wow. in the front row and uh, hacking away at our early deadlines. And it was a great seat on basketball history and great to watch the, the way that they played. So I just... Uh, uh, put all these stories into a, a form, and, and um, of course, Larry Bird's kind of the the, the star of it because people still remember him fondly and remember how great the game was to watch back then. The Hick from French Lick, a very serious competitor, and uh, obviously a brilliant uh, with, with uh, his basketball abilities. And you would look at the guy and think, how is he doing this? But 
Uh, work ethic, of course, is legendary. Uh, would be in the gym shooting free throws uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning after he had missed one out of 100 uh, in his last uh, trips to the stripe uh, and was constantly practicing and working hard and uh, worked his way through various struggles at the end of his career uh, with the back problems, which uh, obviously uh, were uh, far more uh, of an impediment uh, than uh, people might have imagined. Uh, how would you characterize uh, Larry Bird, uh, your relationship with Larry Bird and uh, what he meant to the city and and uh, the way he went about his business, uh, especially when uh, there was a possibility he could have easily been overshadowed by uh, two brilliant, uh, very athletic, and, and uh, you know, uh, guys that, that uh, did this uh, with such elegance, uh, with Michael Jordan, of course, Magic Johnson being in the league. Right. So, I mean, the title of this book is Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. And that's, that's what it is. I came on board in 82 and uh, did four seasons right through 86, which, of course, in my view, still the best NBA team of all time with Bird, Parrish, McHale up front, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ace in backcourt, Bill Walton coming off the bench. And they went 50-1 and one at home that year. Uh, hard to do. And a very, you know, a lot of big guys, a lot of outside shooters. I think they could compete in today's game. But, you know, the game's different now. We understand that. So so this, this book takes you through those times and just the personalities. And Larry Bird was the kind of guy, he was reluctant with strangers. He was not trusting of strangers. I understood that took a while to gain his trust and we had our ups and downs, but there's a lot of hilarious uh, back and forth uh, with, in those days we traveled with them. I mean, we were on the airplanes, we flew commercial, stayed in the hotels, went to the bars at night. It was just, you were part of it. You were on the bus and, and, and you went to practice. And again, except for the, the fame and the groupies and the money, it was just like being on the team. So uh, <laughs> we were around them. Three big and, exceptions. And really, yeah, 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 yeah. Except for those little things. So uh, you were, you could really tell the readers what they were like. And I think that's been lost. And that was one of the motivations to do the book, just that it harkens to a time when, when the people who were covering the team really knew the team and could tell you what was going on. We have a situation in Boston now, you know, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Mark Smart. We don't know who hates each other and who's doing what and, and how they feel about the new coach, the old coach. I tell you, 40 years ago, we knew. We knew how they felt about Bill Fitch, how they felt about Casey Jones, and, and when what they were like. And that's nobody's fault. The way it's evolved is kind of a big moat now, and you can't talk to anybody. And, but in those days, we lived with them. We waited for bags with them. So we really were able to tell you what they were like. This is After Hours with Defoe and Luby here on the Believe Podcast Network, talking with legendary, iconic, Hall of Fame author and writer, best-selling author, Dan Shaughnessy, new book, NBA memoir, Wish It Lasted Forever. Dan, okay, you talk about new versus old. The great thing about Larry Bird was he loved to talk crap. He's one of the legendary crap talkers, but he also, off the court, didn't want to be bothered. He wasn't a big media guy. He wasn't big in doing interviews, unless, like you said, he knew you well, and he wasn't out there and about. However, in our day, everyone's out and about with social media, whether you want to be or don't want to be. How would Larry have dealt with this world where they're, the reporters want to break news all the time, and every fan is a reporter, where you're chronicled wherever you go. Well, yeah, he, he got a little careless going out around Boston, and, and that comes up in the book. He gets into a barroom fight, and that didn't reflect well on him, and he's never talked much about it, but I, I was all over the story, and that, that strained our relationship for a bit. And I think that, you know, that, that kind of, he had some nefarious friendships at the time, guys who wanted to be his bodyguard and stuff, you know, the hangers-on, so he kind of rid himself of that as he got older. He got more mature, and he didn't like to embarrass his his mother or the folks back home in Indiana. So, so he learned his lesson pretty quickly. But he also he was careful. I mean, most of the time he was just careful not to be around strange people, people he didn't know, 
anybody who wanted anything from him, uh, he'd push back on that and just, just stay within the circle of people that he trusted. And, and that was sort of the level that he had. And, you know, he stayed to himself a lot, go to the movies in the afternoon because it was cheaper to buy matinee tickets, that kind of thing. And, and he just was a quiet guy who did not want to be bothered, didn't want to start signing autographs because he knew it would never end. And, uh, uh, it could, it could, you know, kind of intimidate people a little bit, but he didn't care. He was going to just, you know, live his life and, and try to you know, do his job and work hard. And he, he felt that was enough. The great Dan Shaughnessy with us here on After Hours with Defoe and Luby, Believe Podcast Networks. Uh, the book is Wish It Lasted Forever, NBA memoir, focusing in on uh, these great uh, Larry Bird teams. So one of my favorite characters and elements and components of those teams, of course, was the chief Robert Parrish, who uh, almost had the demeanor of the chief in Cuckoo's Nest, uh, the Jack Nicholson movie, because uh, it didn't seem to be a man of many words, uh, although uh, an interesting character and part of one of the great uh, Dan Sports swindles of all time, right, with Joe Barry Carroll going west for the chief and what turned out to be Kevin McHale, a, a franchise-changing uh, yeah. maneuver. I mean, it's like Nolan Ryan for Jim Fregosi and our Lou Brock, Ernie Brolio, any of the all-time uh, great trade swindles uh, orchestrated once again by the Celtics, who always seem to be very good at that. Uh, uh, the organization of the Celtics, uh, we all know about the history in Red Auerbach, but uh, they kind of stayed intact as an organization that always seemed to find a way to be competitive. Uh, I know you, you spoke of the problems they're having this year, but uh, certainly looked like a, a program that was very much on the rise uh, coming into this season. Yes, I mean they they've had continued, you know, they they won of course eleven championships in thirteen years when Russell was here and you know, but then they won twice in the seventies when Red put the team together again with Dave Cowens and Jojo White and John Havlicek and then, then in the eighties he had the Bird era. They had a little bit of a drought then. The Garnett team won it in oh eight and uh they've been in the finals three times in the last five seasons, the conference finals, that is. So final four of the NBA. That's pretty good. They're just we're not sure which way they're trending right now. They they were they came up near the bottom of the playoff teams uh, last season and uh, got off to not a great start this year. So it's a little bit up in the air. But again, the genius of Red Auerbach carried him for the first 40 years of the franchise, and Red passed away in this century. And and uh, they've been you, know, you can't replicate the genius he brought to it. Danny H had a very fine 18 years as a as a GM here, and. Uh, and now they're moving on to the Brad Stevens era of assembling of, of team building. What was it like hanging with the chief or did you ever get the chance to? There's, there's quite a bit about that in the book. The chief <laughs> and I had a moment in San Antonio early on and, uh, you know, it was fairly cordial, but he, he turned off the faucets with me and no one ever really knew why there's a great, I asked Cedric Maxwell when I was researching the book, I'm like, Max, what about, why didn't chief, He's what was it with Chief and me? And he said, Chief, he said, Robert just had a disdain for your ass. He said, <laughs> and that was pretty much it. You know, I mean, you, you can't argue with that logic. So I just, I didn't. I, I tried a couple of times. There's a scene in the book where with the Metro airport in Detroit. And I, I sit down with him while I'm waiting for a flight. And Quinn Buckner's on the other side. And I'm like, Robert, what's the deal? What did I do? Just tell me. We can fix this. You know, and he was not having it. And uh, I talked to Quinn about it 37 years later. He said, he said, yeah, Robertson didn't like you, and he wasn't going to have it. And that, that was it. So it's never really been, been known what it was about. And I, I mean, I'm sure I was hard on him, you know, if he would have a contract stalemate or a walkout or occasional, you know, occasionally he had a hard time getting, getting going in the playoffs, and I'd, I'd poke him a little bit. 
And uh, Mrs. Robert Parrish was not a fan. There's a scene in the book where she chases me down, wants to gouge my eyes out at the Boston Garden. So, you know, we had our moments, but um, I mean, Robert. You're on good terms. You know, Robert Parrish yeah. played more games. <laughs> he, he played more games than anyone in the history of the NBA. Little enough fact. It was unbelievable how, how the longevity he had because he stayed around and ended up with the Jordan Bulls. He got another ring, you know, being 11th, 12th man there. He was a physical specimen. He could run the floor all day never gained weight he never got slower and uh had a beautiful you know teardrop turnaround jump shot and and just played into his 40s uh, at a high level so uh good for him he was a great contributor hall of fame player and and they couldn't have done what they did without him not your favorite interview though uh, yeah you kind of got the uh, same look uh, no no we get from john thompson no, uh, uh, from the chief uh, <laughs> if you ask him about recruiting to kembe matumbo <laughs> no nothing there and it's really he had an interesting story and he was a great teammate. They all loved him because he didn't need the rock. You know, he wasn't complaining about touches. He knew he was on a team with, you know, Mikhail bird, you know, black holes everywhere. You know, he wasn't going to get the yeah. ball back. Maxwell subjugated his ego for that because everybody's shots went down when bird and Mikhail came on board and you knew, but they won. And, uh, and chief was, he got a lot of great passes from Larry bird in traffic though. And, you know, as he learned how to catch those and, you know, sometimes off the bounce, and, and but in, in the flow. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful ancient videos of, of Bird feeding him off the break and, and him getting great easy dunks. He knew what to do with it. Dan Shaughnessy with us on After Hours with Defoe and Luby here on the Believe Podcast Networks. Uh, has a book out, sounds fascinating. Wish it lasted forever, is NBA Memoirs. Uh, all right, uh, one last thing on his team. I know uh, there, there are so many different characters uh, to look into but did everybody hate Danny Ainge at that time I, he, he reminds me I, I guess well, he was an early version of Grayson Allen where, where you're thinking all right the guy's a decent no, that's player fun. That, that's uh, good can't that's, stand the guy yeah. you know around the league around the league that's what he was that's very good I, I got to use that myself I mean steal that nice. thank you but um so uh coming into the league yeah he was a flopper and he was a crybaby and he complained and, and you know he'd take shots he he was fearless he was fast and um you know, he had that, you could make that face. He looked like, you know, the, kind of the, but on the team, he was loved. He was everybody's little brother. They all teased him. You know, Red would make fun of him being a Mormon and all this stuff. And and uh, he'd play cards with, with Bird and McHale. And Red would say, hey, Danny, isn't that against the, isn't that against the religion? This, this gambling over here. And Danny'd point at Larry and, and Kevin and say, Red, it's not gambling against these guys. And uh, sure enough, you know, 20 years later, he ends up getting Kevin Garnett from Kevin McHale, and they're both GMs of uh, important teams in the NBA, and it led to another championship for Boston. So Danny was, I can tell you, very loved on, on by his teammates, and all that stuff just came from everywhere else. And that's actually how McHale ends up taking down Kurt Rambis in the 84 finals, which is Danny said, hey, I'm always taking crap for being the cheap shot guy. Someone else needs to take somebody down here. And McHale did the job in the second half, and they never looked back. Yeah. What we were saying uh, the other day about Grayson Allen, that there is uh, no bigger uh, sporting slime ball than the cheap shot artist. And uh, we were kind of baffled at uh, Coach K with all of his dignity uh, now in his final season. And the tour began last night at Madison Square Garden uh, with a big win over Kentucky. But uh, how he was able to uh, justify that uh, and uh, allow this guy to go out on the court when he was supposed to be so sanctimonious about the game of basketball uh, was always uh, a ponderous question for us. I uh, well, wanted to get in. Uh, we have Dan Shaughnessy with us here on After Hours. It's always great talking to Dan. Uh, but uh, we mentioned some of your uh, illustrious uh, contemporaries there and co-workers at the Boston Globe and different people that have uh, written for the paper. And uh, 
I guess Will McDonough isn't recognized enough anymore. I mean, of course, uh, he was huge as an NFL insider. He was like the original NFL insider. But I mean, this guy was a brilliant newspaper guy uh, at, at that time. And what, what was it like being on the staff well, with, with guys like McDonough and Collins and, and uh, you know, Gordon Eads? And Rem mentioned Ron Borges early in the program, too, who a lot of people might not know, but uh, just a fun guy and, and a great boxing writer. No, I appreciate you citing that. There's a, one of the lead-ins to the chapters is what a powerhouse the Globe Sports Department was in the in the '80s. In my view, the greatest sports staff ever assembled, and and um, we have you know, Sports Illustrated wrote that. Uh, people have talked about it. There's been some competition from I don't know L.A. Times, Washington Post here and there, but we thought we were it. And I know I counted up. I think there's ten guys who or women who were in the Hall of Fame of their respective um, sports. You know, like we had two in hockey and then Bob Ryan and Jackie McMullen in basketball and of course Will McDonough Leslie Bishop football Peter Gammons uh, baseball writer Nick Capardo Larry Whiteside it was in, you know Bud Collins was the last word on tennis uh, you know we had Pulitzer Prize winning photographers we had Lee Montville we had Ray Fitzgerald and you know Willie was in a, a class by himself because he, he basically was the, you know one of the most powerful men in the NFL I used to share a phone in the desk with him and Man, I'd be sitting. He'd go to get a sandwich, and you know, Al Davis would call, and O.J. Simpson would call, <laughs> commissioner commissioner would call. I'm taking messages. It's like it was unbelievable. Answering his phone, and uh, he was the connected guy. He knew everything, and uh, you know, street smart guy. Played all the sports, and uh, really, he was the first kind of pioneer to be an expert on TV as a newspaper guy. So he really paved the way for a lot of people who did that later. He was great to young people. Leslie Visser, who's in the Hall of Fame, she'd tell you that. I mean, it was just uh, amazing to be on a staff with these guys. And Willie was – Willie and Red, Red Auerbach and Willie loved each other. They'd play racquetball a couple times a week. And, and I had to get the, the blessing from Willie when I came on the beat because Red didn't trust anybody either. And uh, Willie told <laughs> him, hey, the kid's okay. So that was it. Red, Red, Red said, well, Willie says you're okay, then I'll, I'll trust you. And that was a big, big help to, men, help to me. And I always, I always told Willie I thanked him for that. All right, uh, we love people that dabble in the occult, and uh, you know th this is uh, one of our favorite themes. Uh, anything that involves a curse, and uh, I wanted to uh, get your perspective on the curse of the Bambino, and of course uh, it was the reverse curse later on. Theo Epstein, and uh, you know they they did a great job there uh, turning things around. Came back from that three nothing deficit against the Yankees, and then uh, dominated for a couple of years. But uh, what do you think exactly was in play there? I mean, how, how real was this curse? And uh, it well, was a tangible right guy with the Boston I, Red Sox. Yeah, you're, t you're talking to the right guy. I started that. I mean, you know, I was the first <laughs> one to use that phrase. That's that was funny. a that was a book in 19, 1988, and I had a I had a wonderful uh, uh, literary agent and uh, editor, and she had a grandfather who used to talk about the curse of the Dambino. He was a house painter in George in, in Dorchester, and she said you should you know after the Buckner World Series in 86 she said you should do a, a book on all this bad luck of the Red Sox since they sold Babe Ruth and it wasn't hard to assemble all that because so many things had happened you know they had the 86 years between and you know, they won in 18 with Ruth and then they traded him in 19 they never won again until 2004 so I wrote The Curse of the Bambino that was the title of the book and it just became a monstrous phrase used by every outlet TV, radio, newspaper headlines and then of course subsequent to the book coming out a million more bad things happened to them. You know, I mean, they, you know, they, the A's swept them in 80, 88, 1990, and they didn't win a playoff game for like 13 years. They lost a million games in a row in the postseason. And then you come into 03 and the Aaron Boone game happens and, you know, another game they couldn't possibly lose that they lost. So 
that was a very real issue. And I mean, we can get into the hocus pocus and bad luck and all that. I mean, basically they never had enough pitching. Uh, you know, the Yankees were of course dominated that whole century, but they, they, they came, unlike the Cubs, the Sox came close and took it to the edge and then didn't win. And so they weren't like lovable losers. They were like, you know, the Bucky Dent game in 78, they had a 14, 14 game lead in July. And then, they get caught, and then they have this one-game playoff, and this guy hits a home run. Bucky, who we love, looks down your way. And um, and then the Buckner thing in 86, I mean, you know, you're, you're, ahead, you're ahead by two runs in the bottom of the 10th with two outs and nobody on, and you lose the game, a uh, clinch game. Yeah, in that just, fashion. Sure. It was just so much stuff like that. So, yeah, it was it was easy to connect dots and create all this uh, imagery and, and, like I said, hocus-pocus and all that. So that can be blamed on me. I wrote The Curse of the Bambino, and then when they won, I wrote Reversing the Curse. And they nice. were both bestsellers. Yeah, I made no known Annette uh, looked like a worse idea than Springtime for Hitler uh, when they decided yeah, to unload the page the Yankees. favorite around here. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> exactly. You're not going to see that in uh, any kind of, uh, you know, summer stock theater uh, around the, the campus of the local universities. Uh, Dan, a pleasure. Uh, we wish you the best of luck. Wish it lasted forever. NBA memoir. Anything you produce is always outstanding. Yep. And we always appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for being with us here on After Hours with Defoe and Luby. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed it. Take care. All right, be well, Dan. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Dan Shaughnessy, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Boston Globe, a uh, longtime writer with the Boston Globe. Mike Luby-Lewitz goes back to 1981, and you know how he ended up there? He was writing for some paper in Washington uh, that uh, went out of business, man. That's funny. He uh, just, you know, stopped, uh, you know, publishing, and uh, that was it. Went out of uh, went out of business, and he went to the Boston Globe, and the rest is history. Yes, 1981 sir. on. That is some sports staff, too, that they had there. I mean, I, I left out a lot of the names because... Uh, I was uh, struggling to come up with the first five, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> Although uh, we, we did love Gordon Eads as a baseball writer. Fantastic. Great. He's here uh, writing for the South Florida Sun Sentinel when the Marlins came into existence here in South Florida, where uh, we hail from. And uh, Ron Borges, that's true. Uh, when uh, this guy, Mike Katz from the New York Times, I've told, I've told this story many times, run like a boxing radio row out in Las Vegas, some Delahoya fight. Katz gets into a bitter argument about some nonsense. You know, real point of minutia with Bob Aaron. So Mike Katz uh, was uh, one of the most respected boxing writers. He wrote for the New York Times, for God's sake. Not easy to get a job there, even delivering papers for the Times. And he always wore a neck brace and walked with a cane. And he was kind of a slovenly <laughs> sort anyway. Had a jacket with, like, dandruff on it, uh, was overweight. I mean, he really was the epitome of the uh, slob sports writer that, uh, you know, would have a mustard stain on his shirt also. And so he, he, although was kind of an authority among the other boxing writers, they all respected him. And uh, he's in a bitter, heated argument with Bob Arum, who was like 80 years old at the time. <laughs> Seems like Bob Arum has been 80 yeah, since birth, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm interviewing Borges. You know, we have him on as a guest on, on one of my radio shows uh, that we were doing, uh, a live show. And, and these guys start duking it out. And as they do... Katz, who had worn a neck brace for like 20 years that I'd seen him on the scene, all of a sudden the neck brace comes off and he's using the cane as if it was a sword. <laughs> as if he was in Olympic Ape and he's uh, trying to hack up Bob Arum, this 80-year-old geezer who had uh, been you know, promoting boxing matches uh, going all, all the way back uh, you know, into the 60s. 
for God's sake. But uh, Borges and I were both stunned by the fact that cats didn't, in reality, need the neck brace. That's great. And that the card <laughs> of some personal injury attorney from New York fell out of his pocket there, Irving Lipschitz. Incredible. All right. Uh, we still have uh, a DeForest Files coming up here. And uh, stay tuned for that. That's brought to you by uh, the great people in South Florida in Coral Gables. Uh, you can uh, find them online, dealvolkswagen.com. If you're anywhere around the country, have the car shipped. going to save a lot of money. But it uh, deals with uh, a bitter losing weekend on both the ponies, college, and professional football. And I think the officiating is the worst atrocity in uh, pro football that we've ever seen. <laughs> I know we say that every year. That's the problem. What do you think? Is this the worst you've ever seen? You were out of town there. there I missed European, that Bears uh, game. Tour. Yeah, I missed that Bears game. I'm screaming at the screen on Sunday night. I'm watching the Chargers of Philadelphia. I'm screaming at the uh, screen just saying, this is the worst officiating I've ever seen. Right? The Chargers eventually, uh, fortunately for them, they were the ones getting jobbed. I mean, calls on Aaron Donald that uh, what were preposterous uh, about roughing the passer. And, and then uh, I watched a, a Monday night game with the Chicago Bears uh, in action uh, against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And they, they call 32 penalties, I think, on the Bears in that game, including any number of mystery calls where you really had to wonder if Tim Donaghy uh, wasn't uh, wearing pinstripes that night <laughs> once again. Uh, we're hard up for officials. Nobody wants to work anymore. Call that Donaghy guy. Okay, Raj. They are going to come out with that, I, I think, uh, pretty soon. They'll have the NFL coaches before the game saying how they uh, would uh, go ahead and bet the game. That's so true. You're going to get like a very serious-looking Mike Tomlin going, you know what? I wouldn't lay the uh, seven tonight. The Bears are a tough team, and uh, I think this Justin Fields is going to run the ball. He's going to find his passing rhythm. He's going to hit a couple deep on us, and I would go ahead and take the points with Chicago if I was betting this game. Thanks, Michelle. Right? And, and going down to Michelle Tafoya down there on the sidelines there, and all she's asking the coaches about is what they would do against the Spurs. Would you play the over uh, tonight, uh, Nagy? I know your uh, job is in jeopardy, but uh, would you be inclined? Do you think there'd be a lot of points tonight? That's yeah, we're really going to pull back on defense. And, uh, I know this. <laughs> Talked about it with Tama before the game here. We're going to allow a lot of scoring in this game because the Russian <laughs> syndicates are all over the over. <laughs> Only a matter of time, I think. For sure. Only a matter of time. All yes, right, so speaking of time, we're coming back with more on After Hours with Defoe and Luby. He's Mike Luby Lubitz. Yes, I'm sir. Jeff DeForest, and we will return with a very detailed DeForest Files, uh, a story of peril. And whoa, and uh, a veritable uh, bending bloodbath. And that's coming up next on After Hours. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.